0: From the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi there, is the mayor in? Marissa Lang with The Washington Post. Hey, it's Darcy. i to pick your brain on the Trump. Hi, my name's Jenna Johnson. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Wednesday, April 29th. Today, the lingering questions about coronavirus, the pressure on schools to reopen, and North Korea's missing leader, Lenny, despite the fact that it seems like all we're doing every day is thinking and reading about coronavirus, there are still a lot of things that we don't know about this outbreak and about how the virus works, or things that we thought that we knew a month ago or two months ago that now seem not quite
1: so clear. Yeah, it's a brand new disease. It's a brand new virus. This is Lenny Bernstein. Lenny Bernstein. He covers
0: health and medicine for The Post. And with the CDC adding six new symptoms to look out for, we wanted to ask Lenny some of the questions we've had about coronavirus,
1: what we're learning now and what we still don't know. As we go through the pandemic, remember the pandemic, well, it seems like a century to all of us is maybe a month and a half old, depending on where you want to begin. And it is showing itself to have characteristics that were not expected and to have characteristics that are pretty dangerous to us.
0: So what are some of the surprising things that doctors have seen in recent weeks in terms of how this virus affects people's bodies?
1: I think one of the most surprising things is that some people appear to be able to walk around or to be hospitalized with relatively mild symptoms, not be feeling like they're short of breath, not be feeling like they're gasping for air until suddenly they crash and they find themselves in a very critical situation and very short of air. When doctors put a pulse oximeter on their fingers and see how much oxygen is in their blood, they are horrified because in some cases, the level of oxygen in their blood is so low that they should be unconscious or even dead and for reasons we don't understand yet the carbon dioxide is escaping from their lungs it's not creating that feeling of i can't breathe and yet they clearly are not getting enough oxygen there's also this question
0: of immunity i think that we've had a lot of conversations where people say well at some point we're going to have herd immunity or that a lot of people will be immune to the virus because they've already had it but it seems like it's not actually clear whether people do become immune once they get the virus and what the science is on how long that immunity could
1: last for. On this day at the end of April, we just don't know. We are doing, starting to do serological tests that show the presence of antibodies in people's bloodstreams. Very, very few have been tested for coronavirus antibodies. That's the serological test. That's what they look for, those antibodies. But whether they convey immunity, as is typical, and how long they convey that immunity for is simply an open question. As you know, the biggest defect in the United States response to coronavirus has been the testing segment. There's two different kinds of tests. There's the uh, quicker test that tells you whether you actually have COVID-19, the disease, at the moment. And then there's the serological test that shows the antibodies in your blood that shows that you did have it in the past. When you, when the virus invades your system, your, your immune system sends out these antibodies to fight it and kill it. They remain in the blood. So we can tell whether you've had it by showing the presence of those antibodies. Right now we are even farther behind on that than we are on testing for people who have the virus. So, That's the one that's going to let us get back into society, and we need to ramp that up dramatically. There are efforts being made to do so.
0: And haven't there been a few reported cases of people who were previously infected with coronavirus who got it again?
1: Yes, but it's not clear what happened to those people. Did they ever actually recover? Did they, as you say, have it, get rid of it, and then develop it again? Was the testing accurate? Did something else that we don't know about happen? So those are very sketchy. They're very early. And we don't yet have the follow-up to rely on them.
0: And then you have a lot of businesses and schools right now who are trying to come up with plans on how to reopen and do that safely and responsibly. And I have seen several people proposing this idea of using temperatures as some way of determining who is safe to be in a workplace, you know, testing people's temperature when they enter the building or when they get on a flight. Is that actually considered a reliable indicator of who might have coronavirus, especially as we've heard that so many people are completely asymptomatic when they do get infected and are capable of spreading the virus to other people.
1: My view on taking people's temperature is that it's better than nothing. It's not terribly reliable because of what you mentioned, the asymptomatic transmission of this virus and this disease. So if you walked into the front door of your workplace one day and there's a person there with a thermometer and they take your temperature and it's normal, you get let in. That doesn't mean that you don't have the virus because you can have it and transmit it before you develop a fever. But if they take your temperature and it's 102, we know for sure we don't want to let you in the building. So you will weed out certain people that way, but you won't catch everyone.
0: So early on in this outbreak, there was this huge emphasis on access to ventilators, and hospitals didn't have enough of them. There was concern that people who needed them wouldn't be able to get them. But now it's, it's clear that most people who end up on ventilators don't actually do very well on them, and it doesn't really help them survive. So what do we know about this? The, the role that ventilators play in treatment, and whether doctors are coming up with any other alternate methods to help people who are having trouble breathing.
1: Ventilators are another subject of controversy in this uh, outbreak. Some doctors feel that we are turning to them too early and too often and that other methods should be used more often, And more liberally, Uh, among those are proning, which means putting the patient on his or her stomach, which tends to clear some pressure and allow people to breathe easier. Some people believe that we should be using those oxygen masks that you'll see where it goes over the nose and mouth and forces oxygen in, but there's not that tube that goes down the throat into the lungs. In order to do that, you have to sedate people and paralyze them sometimes so they don't try to pull the tube out of their throat and that's that's a very difficult thing for the patient it's a very difficult thing for the doctors however ventilators definitely have helped lots of people survive who would have died and different hospitals are seeing different survival rates in new york where people were just overwhelmed In a hospital I went into, very few people ever got off the ventilators alive. Now, was that because of the tsunami? Was that because of the ventilator? Was that because the staff were so overwhelmed that they were running from patient to patient? We don't know. But I talked to a hospital yesterday where they're not overwhelmed, where they have plenty of ventilators, or at least enough, and they have a much better survival rate on their ventilators. So... That is a piece of equipment that is critical to fighting this outbreak, but you're seeing a variety of results.
0: And then my last question is one that is very relevant to me in my life, but I am curious about pets and this question of whether animals can get coronavirus, and more importantly, whether animals can transmit coronavirus. I've heard multiple reports that that is not the case, that they are immune, and yet I've seen stories about dogs and cats and even tigers in zoos getting infected. So do we actually have clarity on that question?
1: No, with everything, just like with everything else, we don't have clarity on that at all. Um, They've done the tests that show that a couple of cats and a couple of tigers have contracted the virus. That's a fact. We know about it because we found it in their blood. Whether or not they can then transmit it to people is totally untested. They don't believe that's the case. But look, Martine, there's been a lot of things in this pandemic that we didn't believe was the case, and turned out to be true. Remember six, seven weeks ago, they said, listen, you don't really have to worry too much about asymptomatic transmission. That's rarely a big portion of a virus like that. Well, look where we are now. Asymptomatic transmission is the bane of our existence because of what it's doing to the population. So I don't want to scare people. I don't want to scare the dog owners and the cat owners out there. I've got a dog. But take everything that people say you absolutely don't have to worry about with a grain of salt and think about it. Look to the future if you can and try to, you know, take care of yourself. Take precautions.
0: Lenny Bernstein covers health and medicine for The Post. Virtually all children in this country are not in school right now. And a lot of cities and a lot of states have come out and said that they probably won't be in school for the rest of the semester and won't have the possibility of going back to school until the fall. So where does that leave people in charge of schools? Well, it
2: leaves them sort of wondering what's next.
1: You're seeing a lot of governors get out and they want to open it up many are thinking about their school system not a long way to go in the school system right now for this season for this year but uh i think you'll see a lot of schools open up even if it's for a very short period of time i think it would be a good thing Uh, the schools are shut down for the remainder of the school year learning continues at home distance learning uh and the like but we recognize there's been a learning loss because of this disruption. We're concerned about that learning loss even into the summer. And so we are considering the prospect of an even earlier school year into the fall, as early as late July, early August. Some states are reopening. If a state is reopening, then it would make sense for some states to reopen schools. I don't know how you really reopen businesses statewide without reopening school. Young people seem to do very well. So I know that there are some governors that uh, aren't necessarily ready to open up their states, but they may be ready to open up their school systems. We'll see, but that's their choice.
2: I mean, there's a sense that probably we're all going to be going back in the fall, but, you know, what does that look like? Clearly, you know, the fall is going to come and it's not like we're going to have a vaccine for this virus. So, you know, how do you make school safe? And a lot of school officials are starting to give that some really deep thought. I'm Laura Meckler. I'm national education writer for The Post.
0: And what are the stakes of this question of how and when kids will go back to school? Like, why is it such an important and in many ways, like, such a scary
2: question? You know, the stakes, I think, are just enormous on on both sides, frankly. I mean, it's enormous on the side of the need to get school going. First of all, if you want to reopen the economy, you have to open schools because schools are, we know, not just education facilities, but also, you know, daycare for working parents. You know, they need a place to put your kids. There's also incredible education ramifications of doing this online learning, which, you know, is fair to say, you know, shaky even in good situations. There are places where it is working relatively well, but also places where it's just not working at all and kids are having trouble connecting, either literally trouble connecting or just having not really participating in the online education, the quality is of a dubious nature in a lot of places. So, you know, that's, you know, a huge thing, you know, if we're going to try to catch kids up from what they've already lost and prevent further losses, you know, you've got to get them back in front of teachers. But then you have the flip side of
0: things, which is that there is a ton of risk involved. Even though kids don't generally get sick or at least seriously ill from coronavirus, they're considered these silent carriers because they might not exhibit any symptoms at all, but then they can just bring it home to their families and, and be a pretty effective way of spreading the virus.
2: Plus, you know, of course, there are other people in school buildings. There are older teachers, there's staff members, there's bus drivers. There's all sorts of people who are vulnerable to the disease, who are participating in, in the school setting. So you do have all of those risks. And then, you know, when you think about the idea of not having gatherings of more than 10 people, you know, in a school, you have hundreds of people together, sometimes over a thousand people in one school. So how does that square with our understanding of what's the safe way to reopen?
0: So what are some of the strategies that school officials are considering for how they could bring children back in a safe way?
2: A lot of these strategies are around the idea of trying to essentially reduce the number of kids who are with one another at any given moment. So one popular idea being considered is you bring half the kids back, say, on a Monday, and then the rest are at home learning virtually. And then on Tuesday, they switch. So you would have sort of only half the kids in the building at any one time. That's one idea. Another idea is to reduce the amount of travel or gatherings within the building. So maybe kids have lunch in their classrooms instead of in a big cafeteria. You know, another idea is instead of having kids change classrooms, you have kids stay in their classes and the teachers change. And again, you don't have large numbers of kids, you know, roaming the hallways, bumping into each other. I've heard administrators talk about one-way hallways where everybody is kind of walking in the same direction. So to reduce the possibility that they might, you know, run into one another.
0: They've they've been doing that in the grocery store and it feels like that never works.
2: You know, it's kind of hard to imagine how you're really reducing, you know, exposure of kids to each other just by having like allegedly a one-way hallway. They're still gonna, I think, bump into each other and you know, of course the idea of six feet apart seems kind of like a joke. If it's a joke at a grocery store, I mean imagine it in a school. So yeah, I mean, no, none of these things are perfect to say the least. But that's the thinking. You know, maybe you eliminate, you know, physical education classes. Maybe you run more bus routes so you can have each kid has its own bench on the bus. But you know, these are ideas, they're not perfect, but are they better than the alternatives? That's what they're trying to figure out.
3: This is going to be a sh- a shock to our system that we really, I've been a superintendent for 25 years and never planned anything like this I was going to have to work on.
2: In Dallas, I talked to the superintendent, Michael Hinojosa, who was talking about that idea of a staggered schedule. Mondays and Wednesdays, you have one group in the building, Tuesdays and Thursdays, a different group, and everybody's learning from home on Fridays. He said that lunches would probably be inside classrooms. And he even said that uh, the thing that was seemed to be keeping him up a little bit was, how is he going to deal with football?
3: In Texas, we have two sports, football and spring football. So everybody loves football here. But uh, we start having pre-football, pre-camps in uh, July. So this is just around the corner, If, if depending on how we're going to handle football. We could go to flag football or we could push it back. Uh, Of course, then you push into other seasons. And in high schools, many of the same athletes do multiple sports. So there are a lot of complications. And that's a decision we're probably going to have to make early on.
2: Another challenge of reopening schools, even if you do reduce the number of kids, is some schools just don't have very many bathrooms. They might have a whole floor with one girl's bathroom and one boy's bathroom, and that's it. So how are kids going to regularly wash their hands if there's only one bathroom and they have to crowd in there in order to use it?
0: And what we've heard from a lot of public health experts is that one of the key components to reopening the economy is doing widespread testing. And I wonder how that applies to schools. Like, is there a world in which we're testing every kid the day before they come back to school or where they're at least doing like spot tests to see if there are some kids
2: who might be sick? Well, I haven't heard anybody talking about doing actual testing for the virus of people in school buildings. I have heard about talks about maybe temperature checks as people walk in the building, like you've seen some warehouses right now, them checking to see if somebody is sick. So that is one possibility. I think though, the idea of having more widespread tests is really important though, because a lot of people like including a lot of teachers unions, They're making the argument that until we have widespread testing, until somebody is able to get a test when they think they might be sick and therefore keep themselves at home, then you can't safely open the schools because there's just too much risk involved. So, you know, I think that if we had a lot more testing, it would be a lot easier for people to feel confident in the idea that you could open schools. Mm -hmm.
0: And then what about teachers? How are they feeling about this? And what do they think is the best plan of action, especially considering how much risk they're at just being in a classroom full of kids?
2: So I talked to a bunch of teachers as well, who are some of the people who are most concerned about this, because while they really miss their kids and they really want to be back with them, and they more than anyone sees the limits of this remote education, they're also scared, you know, about going back into the classroom and whether it's really safe. I I talked with One teacher, her name is Heidi McElroy, and she's in the Kent School District outside of Seattle, one of the first school districts to close.
0: I'm a music specialist, which means I teach uh, kindergarten through sixth grade at an elementary school in Kent. And I have been teaching there for about 14 years now. And um, our classes are about 50 minutes twice a week. So I see the kids quite a bit. And our classes are... You know, relatively large, I have anywhere from 25 to 40 kids in a class. When you think about social distancing, I mean, just first of all, having that many people in a you know, relatively small space is right away
1: problematic.
0: Yeah, and there's just a lot of issues around how do you protect kids and prevent them from spreading, you know, spreading the virus, especially since so many of them can be asymptomatic. And it seems like in some ways this is a a workplace safety issue for them, too. So I I wonder if teachers unions are weighing in on this or setting up their own demands for what they think is necessary to keep teachers safe.
2: Yes, they very much are. Teachers unions are very concerned about this. There's a a petition that's going right now from the union that represents teachers in New York City that already has more than 50,000 signatures to it just in the first few days. They are very concerned about the idea that they and their members would be exposed and that children would be exposed to the virus and that it's just very hard to do any kind of a social distancing when you're in a building with so many people all packed in together. And even if you're trying, even if you're trying to keep them apart and you're doing all of these creative solutions, you know, the question hanging over this whole thing is, you know, will it really work? And obviously the stakes are enormous if it doesn't. They say this has to be an evidence based decision making process. They have to be listening to healthcare experts. It's not really clear when healthcare experts are going to say that it is time to reopen. You know, they're talking about doing things in waves and talking about doing things in phases. Typically speaking, you know, schools are not at the very beginning of that. And of course, there's a possibility that we're still doing remote learning come next school year. You know, there's absolutely no guarantees we open at all. If cases are rising and there's looks like the virus has gotten worse and not better, then, you know, maybe we continue with what we've been doing doing for now.
0: Laura Meckler is an education reporter for The Post. Now, one
2: more thing. So over the past couple of weeks, there has been a
3: lot of speculation about Kim Jong-un. And it all began when he failed to appear on the most important day of the North Korean year, which is the celebration of his grandfather's birth.
1: Tonight, the international mystery, North Korean leader Kim Jong-un has not been seen in two weeks. Adding to rumors, he's sick or even dead. On basically one of the biggest symbolic days of North Korea's history,
2: he was nowhere to be found. What do we know?
3: I'm Anna Fifield. I'm the Beijing bureau chief for The Washington Post. And I wrote a book about Kim Jong-un called The Great Successor. Rumors really became turbocharged last week when a South Korean website reported Kim Jong-un had undergone heart surgery and that he was recovering in a clinic in the country. Serious questions tonight about the health of Kim Jong-un following recent surgery. And then CNN picked this up and reported that he was in critical condition.
1: A U.S. official with direct knowledge tells me that the U.S. is now monitoring intelligence that Kim Jong-un's health is in grave danger. This is following a recent surgery.
3: It may be that Kim Jong-un has undergone heart surgery. He may be recovering. Maybe nothing happened. Maybe he's at the beach in Wonsan, which is, you know, one of his favorite parts of the country. We just don't know. So we need to just be patient and wait for North Korea to either announce something big has happened or for Kim Jong-un to walk back onto the scene. The deaths of North Korean leaders have been greatly exaggerated many times before. In 2014, Kim Jong-un disappeared for six weeks in total. During that time, there was a lot of talk that maybe he'd been deposed, Uh, you know, maybe his ankles had given way because he had eaten too much cheese. And then after six weeks, uh, Kim Jong-un returned. He had a limp and he had a walking stick, but he returned and North Korea never explained it. I mean, this is North Korea. They don't have to explain anything. If Kim Jong-un were to die, that would create a huge crisis in the regime in North Korea. There is no clear successor to Kim Jong-un. He has one older brother who was already passed over for the job. He has one son who is maybe two or three years old, which leaves only one person, there's only one family member who plays any kind of role in the regime, and that is Kim Jong-un's younger sister, Kim Yo-jong. She is about 31 years old, and she's really been uh, Kim Jong-un's sidekick for the past few years. But she's really there in a supporting role. She has not played a leadership role in North Korea. So it's very, very difficult to think that a young woman could take over this regime of old men, basically, uh, that the old guard would accept her. So right now, I am just trying to sit tight and remain patient and I'm waiting to see either if... North Korea announces something, if they have a special news bulletin and their famous news reader, Ri Chun-hee, comes out in a black dress, or if, as happened in 2014, Kim Jong-un pops back up on the scene and things return to normal as if nothing had ever gone awry.
0: Anna Fifield is the Beijing bureau chief for The Post. That's it for today's episode. Thanks for listening. Post Reports has been nominated for a Webby, a very cool award for excellence on the internet. To win, we need people to vote for us, and we'd love if you could help. To cast a vote for our show, find a link to the Webby Awards in today's show notes at postreports.com. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from the Washington Post.